And so that's what we believe is, you know, the government didn't make gold and silver money. People made gold and silver money, you know, thousands of years ago. Welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. Now, on to today's episode. Well, welcome back to the Gold Exchange Podcast. My name is Ben Adelstein. I'll be hosting our conversation today. We're joined, as always, with CEO and founder of Monetary Metals, Keith Wiener. And we have our special guest today, Jim Forsyth, who is a former New Hampshire state senator, U.S. Air Force pilot, current chairman of Citizens for Sound Money, and a partner at Silverback Precious Metals. And we're excited to have you on the show today, Jim. Well, definitely thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your background? Yeah, so as, as a kid, I took Russian in high school and went to the Soviet Union in 84 and 86. And seeing uh, communism up close and personal um, really made me a believer in free markets. You could see that lack of freedom and, and the price that people paid for that. And um, that was what motivated me to join the military to defend against communism. Um, so did ROTC became an Air Force pilot, and I guess I did such a great job. The wall came down two weeks after joining up. <laughs> uh, but then um, about a decade later, um, I, I met Ron Paul uh, up at, uh, in New Hampshire, and he was considering a run for president. And I, I got very active in his campaign in 2007 um, to the point where he endorsed me for a run uh, for Congress. Um, the timing wasn't right for that, but then in 2010, ran for state Senate in New Hampshire, got elected. And then when he ran again in 2012, I was his campaign chair um, in, in New Hampshire, not, not nationwide. But so I was a big believer in freedom, but he was the one that really introduced me to the fact that the monetary aspect, uh, sound money, was really uh, the big bulk of what become, what, what's a free market's all about. Without sound money, you don't have a free market. It's, it's half of every transaction. I, I think that is both a really important point and a really underappreciated point. So many people bandy about the word capitalism or free markets and take for granted that, well, of course, you know, capitalism would be built on a foundation of a central bank and an imposed legal tender, you know, fiat irredeemable currency. That's, that's capitalism, right? I mean, how, who could quibble with that? And if you quibble with that, you find that you are outside the Overton window. You know, you're outside the allowed spectrum of, um, you know, public opinion and public debate. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. In fact, um, the word capitalism has been so distorted and polluted because people think of capitalism as what we have today, which it is, is that's not. So I never use the word capitalism anymore. I use the word free markets because because um, what we have right now is not free markets, but people think of it as capitalism. Every productive enterprise is regulated today. Most professions require licenses. There's a welfare state so vast, we can't pay for it even with exorbitant taxation. We need a central bank to borrow and enable you know, the vast welfare state. There's a huge regulatory state on top of that that interferes with everything. And um, we have outright government ownership of roads and harbors and trains and airports and uh, postal you know, delivery system and radio spectrum and schools, of course, and a central bank on and on and on. And people, people still think, yeah, yeah, well, we have free markets, you know, market economy. Well, not really. Not yeah, if, if you look at the 10 planks of the Communist Manifesto, we have so either fully or partially, I think it's seven out of 10, we're, you know, at yeah. least majorly implemented. 
Progressive um, income tax. Progressive income tax, exactly. My favorite is number five, you know, central bank. Central uh, bank, that's on there, yep. And number 10, public schools. And those are arguably the two most important. You control the money, you control the minds of the kids. You've got control over everything. Uh, but then, you know, progressive income taxation and high taxes on death and on and on and on. Taxes for expatriates, um, you know, got implemented, what about, about 10 years ago now? 10 or 12 years, if you want to leave, you have to add up everything you have, treat it all as if you sold it and pay the capital gains tax. <laughs> then they will consider, my Lord will consider hearing the supplicant's petition to be allowed to, uh, you know, to change owners. And, and move to another Lord's estate. Yeah, I, I remember when I bought a car, I, I, I came from, you know, New Hampshire, which has no sales tax. So I thought it'd be smart, you know, maybe buy a car outside of Maryland. But no, it's, you know, if you buy it somewhere else, you don't get charged a sales tax in Maryland, but you do get charged like a transfer tax that happens to be equal to the sales tax. Right. And so you can't, you can't win. But I'm, I'm glad you said that about education. Um, that was my big um, campaign promise and that, that I was able to deliver on with the help of a lot of really good people is um, education tax credits in New Hampshire um, to get school choice. Because I, I do agree that's, um, you know, if you want to look at effect of the long-term future in terms of belief and liberty, it, it's, you know, the kids, right? That's where it all starts. You know, today I'll just pick on the conservatives. I like to pick on, I'm an equal, equal opportunity picker honor when it comes to the parties. But if conservatives object that, oh, you know, today with um, whether it's common core or critical theory, whatever it is, you know, the communists are teaching communism in the public schools. I'm like, do you not see the irony? What is it that you would expect communist plank number 10, an institution founded, <laughs> communist manifesto plank number 10, the institution created by that plank? What else is it that you would expect it would be? Uh, and I hate to even say teaching, but propagandizing, indoctrinating, brainwashing, um, you know, sculpting. If, if people want an eye-opener, read the, the Underground History of American Education by John Taylor Gato. He was a, a New York uh, Teacher of the Year for, for several years running, and then wrote an essay saying, you know, I quit, I think, I, I think was the name of the title, about, you know, all the things that were wrong with the system. And that, that's not to say, you know, I always try to be careful because there's really great people in the public school system that are really trying to do the right thing. It's just... The institution as a whole is, is um, you know, once you, once you put that much government control on something, it's it's not going to work. There's a, there's a saying from Lean Manufacturing, the Toyota way, and I think it comes from there. Maybe I'm speaking on this slightly. And the saying is, uh, bad systems beat good people. Yeah, yeah. You could have the greatest intentions in the world, but when you're up against all those institutional incentives and the institutional structure, institutional management, um, and of course, the kids are there by force, and the parents are putting their kids there by force, and the curriculum that has to be taught, selected by the government, central planners, and of course, the people who are paying for it, an unrelated third party who are paying by force, the outcome of the whole thing is what it is. It can't be anything other than that. And um, you know, despite the, the good intentions of some you know, within the system, and of course, it tends to beat the good intentions out of most of them. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Like that, that's why this guy quit, right? It, it, it you know, he, he got fed up. I'm sure if you plot a graph of good intentions as a percentage of the teacher population at age 22, when they finish their year of student teaching and get their first job as a teacher, I'm sure the good intentions percentage has got to be pretty high, like 90s, right? 
but I'm sure that over time that graph is going to be, you know, as they encounter all the perversities of it, as they're ill-treated by the system and the teachers are not well served by this either. Uh, it's easy to focus on what it does to the kids. It's not good for the teachers either. And then little bit by bit, all the goodwill is beaten out of them. And then some of them quit and move on. And some of them just, you know, become numb. That was another bill that I was the prime sponsor on is eliminating teacher tenure. That may be quite popular with the local local teachers. Oh, I bet. <laughs> Did you hire bodyguards? <laughs> no, I remember I remember going into my son's school. I got invited in as a senator to um to talk to them and answer their questions. And I, you know, politely agreed and came in and they had like paintings up on the wall, Forsyth fails our future and stuff like that. <laughs> it was brutal, but uh, I patiently answered their questions for an hour and a half. Jim, you should see if you can get those, uh, you get those posters, maybe put them <laughs> up on the wall. It'd be a good check <laughs> Yeah, well, so let's, let's talk about um, New Hampshire a little bit. So as the state Senator, what did you find was the hardest thing to get done? Because it seems like a lot of the uh, incentives are to push only in one direction, which is print more money, you know, offer free goodies. What, what was it like in, let's say, the state government versus what we think is going on in the federal government? Do people know more? Do people know less? Yeah, it's it, it was it was really eye opening because, like I said, I, I started a run for Congress, um, but then backed out, and you know, I made a conscious decision to run for state senate instead of Congress. Um, and that's because, you know, I've known of people that go to the U.S. Congress with all good intentions and, you know, they just get beaten up by everybody else. Um, I kind of feel like it's it's somewhat hopeless. Uh, the states, on the other hand, um, we were really fortunate. We had five, you know, to 24 senators, um, 19 of us were Republican. Five were business owners that just ran because they were fed up and they wanted to make a change. And, um, you know, I, I was one of those. And then at, at the end, I think four or five of us left. <laughs> we were done after two years. We'd had enough. Um, I had some personal issues on my end, but um, but New Hampshire is a really unique state. There are 400 state representatives. Um, that's the third largest legislative body in the world. Um, and, and because of that, you know, it's one rep per 3,000 people. Um, you know, forget about trying to make campaign contributions to affect one of those House reps. You know, he's going to get elected without spending a dollar because people in town know him. Um, and then there's the free state movement. Um, a lot of and then I, I always thought of the free state movement as reinforcements versus like some invasion because New Hampshire has been lover of liberty for 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 a long time. Um, they have live for your die on the, you know, as their state motto. And so we were able to get a lot of great things done. Um, and, you know, I, I look at my campaign promises and, you know, usually you know, you're lucky if they get anything on their campaign promises, but but we did, I did everything on there. Um, so education tax credits, which they've been trying to pass for 30 years, we got passed. Um, and then uh, uh, we lowered the state budget by, I think it was 11%. It was the largest decrease in 100 years. State budgets or all government budgets seem to be a ratchet. You know, there may be years where they pause and don't increase, but they only go in one direction, generally. Yeah. Uh, so 10%, 11% cutback is huge. Yeah, I was prime sponsor on medical marijuana. And I went, we started with two Republican senators supporting it to winding up with 12. Um, in fact, it's the, and we passed it. Um, it's the only Republican controlled state legislative body that has passed it. And a Democratic governor vetoed it. 
Um, and then the Democratic senators flipped their votes. They had all voted for it, and then they flipped their votes to support the veto. Um, however, so it, it didn't go into law, but then the next year with a new governor, um, and a lot of the senators I had convinced that were still there, um, that passed into law, thankfully. Um, so that was another thing I was, I was particularly proud of. Um, we did some medical malpractice reform. I was uh, not a prime sponsor on that, but I was very active in that. So uh, very effective couple of years. Um, and, and, you know, I'm looking at what's going on in New Hampshire now, and there's, there's, they, they've gone from, um, you know, those education tax credits. Now they've added these educational freedom accounts. Um, which basically beefs it up even more. Our, our tax credit was, I think, $2,400 was available. This makes like $5,400 available, I think, on top of the tax credits um, and, and broadens it out more. Um, so really great things going on in New Hampshire. And you know, I look at what J.P. Cortez with Sound Mind Defense League is doing around the states. And I think that's the solution is, is you know, let's let's work things at the state level. Because if, if the dollar um, runs into problems, collapses, depending on how you look at it, um, you know, the federal government's going to be broke kind of thing. Um, and it's going to be the states that are going to be hopefully there to pick up the pieces. And they don't have skin in the game. They don't benefit from the money printing. It's the federal government that does. Right. Your, your story about the veto and how the politics were just perverse. My experience in Arizona is that um, every year for five years, this bill would, would come out. It started out as gold legal tender. And then, you know, which included repealing the capital gains tax on gold and silver at the state level. And then it kept getting vetoed. It got vetoed. Uh, well, one year it didn't make it out of committee, but um, three other years made it out of committee. It got vetoed twice, or three times, excuse me, by two different Republican governors. The thing that was so bizarre about it to me, uh, and I was, so I was there, obviously on the side of trying to get this passed. I was meeting with legislators, I was testifying, you know, both, both whatever committees came up. Um, the thing that was just bizarre to me was those vetoes, the, the bill always passed on strict party lines. Every Republican voting, you know, I and every Democrat voting nay. And um, a Republican governor vetoing something that passed by his party on strict party lines. And I, I just, Maybe I'm just stupid or naive, but I just couldn't get my head around that. Like, what is the bizarre politics of it? And then one thing that occurred to me is that a lot of the Republicans who voted for it, voted for it knowing it wouldn't pass, they were actually against it. Hmm. For the idea of honest money. Um, and a big thing in Arizona, and I had, um, I brought this up in, in a meeting with the, the, the lead sponsors uh, of this, is to use the term honest money rather than sound money. A lot of people think sound money means a dollar where there's 0% inflation. And I said, but gold is honest money. And even if you had 0% inflation in the, in, in the dollar, there's a dishonesty to it anyways, which is, which is the root of the issue. So let's call it honest money. So a lot of these Republicans here, and, and not to mention all the Democrats, were not for honest money. They're for something else. When you think about that, it's like, it becomes very daunting what we're really up against. You know, politically, you know, what I saw here is very simple. It just wasn't a lot of constituency in favor. Um, so every time, you know, it would, it would come before the House Financial Services Committee or the Senate Banking Committee or whatever, you know, there'd be an open hearing and anybody could come and testify. And I always did. And, um, you know, there would always be like half a dozen to a dozen citizens who came to testify. They were always in favor of it. There wasn't any citizen that I ever saw against it. 
the only people that were against it that were testifying were like um you know either the uh legislative what they call it legislative committee that had some you know narrow technical objection in some way or the um like the state treasurer's office one year the bill said that uh, the state is obligated to accept payments of taxes and gold coin and right. the state treasurer you know sent somebody to basically say uh we don't have the personnel the equipment the training the process like if someone's going to pass a gold coin over the counter we don't have a way of dealing with that from you know figuring out fakes and counterfeits to storing it appropriate security procedures we don't have any of that so you know we need a budget of whatever a couple hundred thousand dollars to staff up and buy some stuff and um you know that was the only real objection but there was you know there was half a dozen to a dozen people who were in favor of it um but I, I you know if you're a politician looking at this there really is no other you know you could vote against it and it's not like anybody would be ringing the phone off the hook nobody cared right the people the voters that didn't really care and um so at the end of the day yeah finally we won something it was a very narrow you know little thing that just said okay you know um gold and silver are now immune from capital gains tax in arizona basically great I mean, that's, that's good that's that's a step forward but it took five years to get that and uh you know, I, I kind of felt like I, I beat my brains against the brick wall for five years. Yeah. Now there's there there's definitely game, games that happen. Like you said, they might be against it, but they voted for it, knowing it was going to die. That that stuff definitely happens. Um, you know, especially with roll call votes. You know, there's there's a certain vote that you don't want it on your record one way or the other. But if you know it's going to get killed, you can vote the way um, it's going to be popular for your constituency. Yet be be comfortable that it's not getting killed we've had that go the other way of um people voting against a bill knowing that we had the votes to pass it and if we didn't have the votes to pass it they would have voted for it you know but but they were in a liberal district district and right. so you know they was one representative who was there for the whole debate and all the testimony and everything about the bill and then when the secretary of the committee called roll she literally slammed her lap shot shut slammed her folder shut and ran out the back door. It was the chair of the committee. Yeah. Like, yeah, I never missed a roll call vote. Um, we were actually in the Senate. Uh, Senate president was very big on, um, you know, for every roll call vote, let's try to have everybody there. And, and we did, um, you know, that, that being said, there was times it was like, please don't roll call this. <laughs> it's kind of weird this day and age with electronics and stuff. I mean, every vote could be roll called, but to a certain extent, I mean, some votes, it's really hard to divine what their meaning is. Um, you know, you look at the bill and, you know, a vote may not really mean that much on certain bills. And so you don't roll, want to roll call everything. But, you know, there, there are certain bills, that, you know, you want to make sure to roll call, get your name on there for next election kind of thing, because you know they're going to be scored. Right, 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 right. Well, I have a question about uh, what we think about the government's involvement in sound money. Do we think that the government needs to be involved to get us back to sound money or i know that keith and i uh have some ideas on how to have a free market uh solution but yeah jim what do you think about that i mean there's definitely ways to help and there's definitely ways government can hurt yeah so um yeah let me explain the the, the goals of citizens for sound money which is to encourage people to use sound money and to protect the right to do so now you notice that's not you know the goal isn't to go advocate for backing of the dollar by gold it's to get people to use sound money um, and, and we don't believe 
the government's required for that. Um, you know, you can start using sound money today, especially, you know, with the advance of blockchain and, and companies like yours. Um, there's, there's really good ways to do it these days, um, you know, even if it's just saving in physical gold and silver. Um, and so that's what we believe is, you know, the government didn't make gold and silver money. People made gold and silver money, you know, thousands of years ago. It, 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 arose, it arose naturally. Government winds up getting involved and then messing it up, like the Romans clipping the coins. Um, and then the creation of the Federal Reserve has led to a steady erosion of the dollar. Um, so, so, so we don't, we don't want a government sound money solution. We want a free market sound money solution. And, you know, the rise, the rise of the Federal Reserve, central bank, you know, that was something that was fought by our founding fathers, you know, Jefferson versus Hamilton, um, you know, Jefferson coming out against the central bank and then Andrew Jackson shutting down the central bank. Um, you know, they, they understood that monopolizing that banking power was a very dangerous thing. And, you know, before then, gold was money. You could go deposit in your local bank, get a certificate, maybe specific to that bank versus a state-issued currency, um, and, and trade that paper. Um, and, the, and the competition between those banks to, you know, hold your gold, you know, kept people relatively honest. Sometimes leverage ratios would increase and some banks would go bankrupt. Um, it's common for people to hold their money in a couple different banks for that reason. And I, I think that's where we should be heading is back to a system that's decentralized. You have uh, multiple different um, you know, companies or services to, to hold your gold, custodian your gold for you um, and, and create a way to make it spendable. Um, like your company, there's other companies and, and, um, you know, and, and not get the government involved because they will mess it up for sure. Well, one of the things that blows my mind it's like if you meet a flat earther, you know, who, who truly seems in earnest to think that, you know, the earth is, is square or flat or something like that. Really? How could you possibly, have you never been on an airplane before? Like, anyways, when you meet somebody who thinks that, oh, yeah, it's the state that, you know, declares money and legitimizes money. And then if you didn't have a state doing that, you wouldn't have money. And therefore, you couldn't have an economy because everything would be barter or something like that. And um, on Twitter today, I'm not gonna name the name, but he's one of the folks that I call the otherwise free marketers. So people that they can tell you exactly how a minimum wage law will harm the workers and exactly how rent control, or you know, now we may have price controls on gasoline, cost shortages and, and all these things. But when it comes to money, somehow they're advocates of the Fed and a central planning regime that, oh, the Fed should hike interest rates according to this formula, the Taylor rule or whatever that they, whatever's in favor at the moment. And he was going on, I guess some of the modern monetary theory people have attacked him. And their, their big curse where they don't, they don't call people Nazis, they call them neoliberal, which is like the biggest curse in the uh, MMT you know, lexicon. And they're really going after him. So he's like, you know, MMT goes back to chartalism, which is what Keynes you know, started with. And then you know, transmogrified it a bit. And chartalism goes back essentially to this medieval notion that, um, you know, money is the sovereign prerogative. Anyway, then he's, he's railing about this in his tweet. And it's like, yes, right on. And then it goes suddenly in the middle of his tweet so horribly wrong as he's saying that, you know, this idea that the sovereign has a prerogative to declare money is a medieval notion. And we don't have the divine right of kings anymore. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And only a democracy has that prerogative. It's when the people vote for it, it and <laughs> say it this explicitly, then it takes on the legitimacy that it's just one king. And, and like, how did this go so bad? What started out so good? Whether it's a democracy that votes to put that boot on your neck or whether it's an individual king that uh, votes, you know, decides to put that boot on your neck, you still have a boot on your neck. And that's the problem is the boot on the neck, not who directed that boot to be there. Yeah, when, when, when people say things like that, I, li I like to remind them that Hitler was elected. Um, you know, it, democracy doesn't make everything okay. It's you're supposed to have a bill of rights, you know, minority, majority rules, but minority rights where, you know, there's certain things that it doesn't matter how you vote, you can't do um, according, according to the constitution. You ever see um, Patriot with uh, Mel Gibson? Or oh Logan? yeah. There's a great line in there where he says, why would I want to trade one tyrant 3,000 miles away for 3,000 tyrants one mile away? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So at first, like, he starts out as not really on board the um, revolution because, you know, because of that concern, like, what, what are you all going to build here? Is it really going to be any better? Right? And then eventually he you know, gets involved in you know, the plot of the movie, but um, that, you know, state control or, or even the belief that you know, there would be no such thing as money. Like we wouldn't be able to transact with each other unless the state, you know, gives its official blessing or decree. We give you irredeemable pieces of paper with green ink on them. Uh -huh. You know. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's interesting because, you know, our, our nonprofit is, we use dollars for very little. Um, we use gold and silver for everything. Um, you know, digital forms. And, People will ask us, like, is that legal? It's like, right, right. yes, it's legal. Like, there's this big conception that, you know, spending other th anything other than dollars is somehow illegal. It's not. It, it's just, you know, if you're a merchant, legal tender says you must accept dollars if offered, but it doesn't say you have to. No, not as a merchant. I wrote an article for Forbes about this. Legal tender says that if you are a creditor and the creditor tenders dollars, there you go. Nobody's going to force you to take it, but the court is going to say he offers you the dollars. Take it or leave it. It's up to you. But if you leave it, you don't get any further recourse out of the courts. That's what legal tender says. So it gives the debtor, um, you know, a, a privilege to force the the, the creditor to take that. Um, but you know, if you're a merchant and you you just post a bunch of prices and you say price of this TV is one ounce of gold and the price of this is quarter ounce of gold, whatever, that's your right. Yeah, you may not stay in business very long. I don't think there's a lot of people that want to pay gold for a lot of other reasons, but um, you have the legal right to do that. They're not going to shut you down. Well, it's good. No, I, I I forgot that nuance. Um, I've always interpreted it as like merchants, but it's creditors got it. And, and they're not really forced in the sense of like any penalty. It's just that the courts won't give them any other recourse. Right. You know, I want to get paid in gold. They're going to say, no, we assess this as a $2,000 credit. and now, and the other things that you can do today, so when um, Roosevelt um, broke the gold standard in 1933, he made it illegal to own, he also voided all the gold clauses with another presidential edict. I think it was a separate one. Uh, 1975, Congress re-legalizes gold to be possessed by Americans. It was shortly after Congress had another act that they passed that um, repealed the uh, prohibition on gold clauses. In contracts. So you can, and of course, monetary metals, we do, 
have contracts that um, specify payment in gold and have a specific performance language, which is direction to the court that says, no, no, I don't mean this in a vague general way that the court can helpfully reinterpret and say, well, they probably, they said an ounce of gold, but they probably meant about $2,000. Uh, and then, of course, you know, 10 years later, when an ounce of gold is $10,000 or whatever. No, no, no. You can say specific performance matters, which means, no, no, it's actually that ounce, not some other equivalent the court may, you know, deem. And, yeah, that, um, and all this legally, you know, this legally works. Yeah, that, that was a fight uh, many of us, in, well, mostly in the House, but some in the Senate, some of us in the Senate, because um, our pay was $100 a year or $200 per term. Right, because it was written in the Constitution, so and nobody's going to try to amend that to raise their rates. But I always insist, I you know I want um, was it five ounces of gold a year? That's that that's what I should be paid because that's what that means. I'm going to take it that you didn't win that fight. No, I didn't win that fight. So, so one thing that um, I, I know neither of us are necessarily big fans of Bitcoin, but um, one aspect of it that I find interesting, and I tweet about this every once in a long while, and I kind of feel like I probably should tweet about this again soon. So maybe I'll use this episode as an opportunity to do that, which is that Bitcoin has sparked what used to be called the currency debate, you know, 100 plus years ago. Um, and, you know, millions and millions of people, now maybe they've, they've gone all in betting on this, you know, number go up. But um, maybe more interesting than that is have become aware of the evils of you know, the, the concentration of power in the Fed and what it means and what they're doing to our money. And they're probably reading all sorts of things from Ron Paul and Murray Rothbard and others about the government and what they're doing to the money. And of course, they're all going to Bitcoin at the moment. What do, what do, you, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, a lot of thoughts on that. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say that I'm not a fan of Bitcoin. Um, I'm, I, I'm not a holder, let me put it that way, or at least not in any significant way. Um, but but I agree, Bitcoin really awakened a great discussion, and I think it was something in, in you know trying to solve that problem. From the, my campaign manager, a number of people that that I worked with, you know, back then were big into it, and I understood it, and I thought it was genius. Um, you know, a way around the banking system and an alternative currency, you know, that can't be inflated. But but even back in that day, I figured, you know really for this to work, it's going to be backed, have to be backed by um, something tangible, uh, gold or silver. Um, and so I kind of thought that, you know, blockchain, gold and silver, uh, you know, it's, it's taken a long time to get there because um, it's, it's more challenging, but, but I, I do see that as kind of the, the end solution, but I'm really grateful for Bitcoin to awoke, have woken so many people up to this whole discussion. You know, I do think uh, blockchain, gold and silver um, is, you know, the, the 21st, 22nd century solution to the problems we have with paper currency, um, you know, because, you know, it can't be modified and, and um, you know, you can, you can see if it's become fractionalized. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for Bitcoin. And it, it seems like there was this time where it was, you know, Bitcoin is digital gold and, you know, everybody's Bitcoin maxis. I, I think recently over the last, you know, six months to a year, especially thanks to like people like Lawrence Lepard, William Middlecop, who are fans of both gold and silver and Bitcoin, um, Luke Grumman as well, you know, to wake people up to, um, you know, that these are allies against fiat, they are not enemies. And I think 
know, this whole drop, drop gold campaign, I got to think that that was a fiat banker or central, you know, somebody in the banking system that, that came up with that idea, you know, because really, if you're going to campaign for Bitcoin, do you need to go after the gold holders? Why don't you go after the dollar holders? You know, that's a much bigger target. Um, you know, you've got these two small sections and pitting them against each other is insane. Um, they should be working together. Um, you know, I think it's wise for, for I, I think it's unwise to be a Bitcoin maxi where you're just putting everything into it because it becoming our currency is not as, as far from inevitable. Um, you know, there's there's competing technologies, improved improving technologies in the crypto space. Um, and, you know, there, there, there's no cash equivalent of Bitcoin with 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 a uh, asset backed digital currency. You could redeem and basically spend your cash anonymously. Um, so that's in vain. So, you know, if you like Bitcoin, that's great. Um, there, there is potential high upside because it's starting so small. It's gotten pretty big now, though. Um, so the upside's getting more limited. But um, definitely diversification of sound money assets the key, and recognizing that you know Bitcoin, gold, silver are allies in the fight against fiat. One of my um, uh, challenges, I guess, with all this, and uh, I guess I get to claim that um, long before. I was harping on this point for Bitcoin. I was harping on it for gold as well. So I guess I'm, I'm an equal opportunity picker on her, as I said uh, earlier. And that is the, I, I think of it as a funny thing happened along the way. So people kind of read something or something happens or the Fed does something crazy or stupid. And then people like wake up to the idea of gold. Okay, great. And then they start to read everything about it obsessively. I can recall when I did that. So in 2008, um, I sold my first company, Diamondware, August 19, 2008. Um, as a historical footnote, it was the last acquisition Nortel ever made, um, and probably one of the last decent exits that anybody had before the market slammed shut, you know, days to maybe a few weeks later. And um, at first, I just felt like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on cloud nine. And then as the world started to cascade over into the abyss, all that's going on, I started to read obsessively. You know, I, I, at the time I would have said, I felt like I'm lost, drawn to a flame of just, you know, trying to figure out what is going on. How do I protect myself? I worked 14 years to build that company, uh, sold it, it was liquid. I didn't want to lose everything in some catastrophe, not of my making. And um, so, you know, you discover gold and then there's a moment at which you feel like, oh, done enough reading, I'm gonna buy some. And, you know, and I did. And then a funny thing happens along the way and you start to cheer for its price to rise. So it's, it's some, something shifted. It went from, this is money, this is honest money. And I want the US to go back to, or the world to go back to using this you know, daily commerce to cheering for its price to go up in terms of the thing that I've decided is non-money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It means it's worth more dollars. And, um, you know, uh, I certainly have made no secret of my objection to the gold bucks cheering for the price to rise and, and getting angry when it doesn't rise or falls because they want to sell their gold for more of the very dollars they just told you were going to be worthless by tomorrow morning. And I, th I think this is just an inevitable outcome of, of a, a market where speculation is rampant. Everybody's looking for whatever asset they can speculate on to either preserve their purchasing power, increase their purchasing power, and then that you know, speculation and all the price action and all the articles saying yay and no, and, you know, 
whys and wherefores and the Fed is going to tighten and that's going to be bad for gold, but there's going to be war in Ukraine, which is going to be good for gold. It's another one of my objections and people, there was some headline, I don't remember who said this, but you know, nuclear war in North Korea would be good for gold. And I just, I just, I just lost it right there. And I'm like, what the bleep are you thinking? Like yeah. nuclear war is not good for anybody or anything. We should never be cheering on a nuclear war, even if you think that's going to make the price of gold go to 5,000, which maybe it would and maybe it wouldn't. But do you really want gold to 5,000 in a world where nukes are flying? Or would you rather have peace and prosperity in a world where gold is only $1,200? Like, it, this should be a no-brainer, guys. Anyways, I, I make enemies every time I open my big fat mouth and say stuff like that. But I 100% agree, and that's a point I make often is, like, people will talk about their price targets for silver and say, what, what, what price are you going to sell your silver at? I said, well, when it's 30 to one, you know, uh, gold silver ratio, I'll sell it for gold. <laughs> you know, right. there, you know, there, there's no dollar, you know, pick up dollar price target. It could get there. Who knows? You know, it, I, I don't care what the dollar price is. I want to know, you know, what, what's the S and P to gold ratio? What's the Dow to gold ratio? You know, when, when that gets, um, you know, low enough, then I can buy some stocks again, you know, after fleeing from them. Um, you know, what's oil to gold, those kinds of things. That's, that's what matters, not the dollar price of any of these things. Um, you know, I'm a mathematician, um, airspace engineer, and, you know, the dollars in the denominator, the dollar, if you believe like I am, is going to zero. So you got to get that out of the denominator. You know, gold needs to be in the denominator. Yeah, I, um, I talked about the idea of Copernicus, and um, you know, before Copernicus was the geocentric model of the universe that everything revolved around the Earth. And um, when you hold that belief, number one, you can't explain the retrograde motion of the planets. Why is it the planets are going forward and then backwards a little bit before they go forward again and then backwards again? There's no explanation for that. And then even the mass, even forget explaining it, the mass to describe it is pretty complicated. Yeah, um, yeah. When, 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 you, when you realize that actually the Earth and the other planets are going around the sun, everything simplifies. It becomes much more elegant. And I think the same thing is true. If you think that gold is going up and down and you're using the dollar as if that was a stable uh, reference point, then everything is complicated. You have all these gyrations to explain. When you realize that gold is actually the center and the dollar is going up and down and mostly down, um, it just becomes conceptually simpler. I, I, th I think we're heading into a period. I mean, the market has been crashing, right? Will, will the Fed start to reverse course? Maybe. And if they do, well, pro I say probably, never mind, not maybe. Um, you know, w we may not, we may have a lot of people that stay in the stock market not realizing that it's crashing because they're looking at, you know, the S&P in dollar terms. And they won't see it crashing versus gold, you know, and they'll stay in, you know, longer than they should be. Because so, I, I mean, I can entirely, I can totally see, especially since um, capital gains are such a big part of tax receipts that, that you know, they, they can provide enough liquidity. So the stock market keeps going up in nominal terms, but, but not in real terms and not in gold terms. That's right. And if you measure stocks in, in gold, um, you know, I, I wrote an article talking about um, what does it mean if gold outperforms stocks? Flip it the other way. I mean, stocks are going down in real terms. 
right. all, all these businesses, which presumably are productive and profit-seeking and so forth, are going down in value. The entire world of productive business that produces everything that you want and need, like food and cars and telephones and computers, is going down. Is that really a good thing? Is that something we should be cheering for? I mean, it's inevitable and, and it's happening. So what, what do you think? You said the Fed probably reversed course. I'm interested to explore. Obviously, I've published my views on that, but I'm interested to hear your views on what do you think the Fed's going to do? What, what do you think is going to precipitate it? What do you think is likely timing? Um, and, and, and I'll give you the caveat that, of course, nobody can predict the future with perfect clarity, and you're trying to get into the, side, into the heads of people who are not rational and they're politicians, and you know, they, have their, they lick their finger and put their finger in the air, you know, saying, you know, which way does the wind blow? But given all those caveats, what do you think? So I'm, I'm a big fan of Luke Groman. Well, Lynn Eldon too, but I subscribe to Luke's uh, newsletter. Um, it's not necessarily, I think, like him, because, you know, I'm not just repeating what he's saying, but, um, you know, his views align with mine, but he, he sees them as reversing. And it's because, you know, you look at the at debt, debt to GDP to reverse that, we need negative real interest rates. Um, foreigners aren't buying treasuries hardly at all anymore. Um, they played some games to get the banks to buy treasuries by changing the SLR ratios, I think. Um, you know, but, it, but at some point, and is it, people keep saying, you know, what's this, when are they going to reverse course based on what the stock market is? I think, I think it's the Fed, the, the bond market, you know, when the bond market goes no bid, um, you know, you're going to have to reverse. And for, for, you know, at 8% inflation, the bond should be at, you know, 10% to provide a positive, you know, the normal positive real return. Um, are they going to let it get the 10%? I don't, I don't think so. So um, I, I don't know at what point they reverse. Um, I think the catalyst would be the treasury market versus the stock market, but I, I think they'll have to mathematically. I, I mean, um, you know, you know, especially, and then tax receipts are going to fall with a falling stock market. Um, so that that's motivation for them. So, to so called wealth effect slammed into reverse. Um, I've, I've talked about this a few times, but it's, it's always interesting. For some reason, they invited me to the Manhattan Institute sponsors something called the Shadow Open Market Committee meeting. So SOMC, you know, named after the FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee meeting, um, as a bunch of monetarists who, um, you know, sit there and presume to give the Fed criticism, but it's criticism from the friendly side. They're like, hey, buddy, you should have raised rates 25 bips, you know, six months ago. And according to this formula, which we all agree on, the Taylor rule or whatever, you know, you should have done that because otherwise this is going to happen. And it's a bunch of rubbish. Um, we had as the keynote speaker at this particular time, Dick Fisher, who at that time was the president of the Dallas Federal Reserve. And uh, I don't remember what he said. It was completely forgettable. But one thing that stood out was somebody asked him about the wealth effect, so-called wealth effect, which is, you know, people feel richer and spend more money when assets are going up, in particular stocks, but also real estate. And so um, he said, I'll never forget. He said, he's a charismatic guy. It looks like he'd be a lot of fun to have a beer with, you know. He's asked this question, he says, well, you know, and he has this open palm, let me just say, the wealthy have been very affected. <laughs> you know, this is wonderful fun. And everybody in the room is giving the polite golf clap because the room is full of 
one percenters and people that are hoping to go to the revolving door. So there's a three-way revolving door between um, you know, the Fed or the Treasury, uh, investment banks, and uh, academia, the universities, you know, for, for PhDs in, in monetary economics. And in the universities, they get prestige, and the government, they get power, and the banks, they get money. And they crave all three, and there's a revolving door as their career you know, ascends upwards, they sort of spiral through a couple of times. And so everybody in the room who wasn't a one percenter was an aspiring one percenter as they're looking at that revolving door and they were just younger and not, not there yet. And everyone's just, oh, well, this is wonderful. <laughs> and I, I'm sure I was the only guy in the room sitting here thinking, you son of a bitch. And I, I was certainly I didn't clap. I was just like, just this cold fury. You yeah. That you think that what you've done is you've engineered a way to take the money from the poor and the middle class and transfer it to the rich. And you're not okay with that. You're telling jokes about it and everyone's applauding it. Now, it's actually worse than that. If you got richer, it certainly didn't come from the poor. The poor don't have any money to begin with. That's why they're the poor. If you feel billions richer, it didn't come from the poor. It came from somewhere else. Secondly, the middle class feels richer too, to the extent that they have stocks in their 401k, to the extent they own their own homes and do all the things that middle class people do, which most of them have some assets. That's why they're the middle class and not the poor. They feel richer too. So you didn't get their money. If it was a transfer from them to you, they'd be pissed. They'd be the ones with the pitchforks and the torches. And you know, you'd be rich but barricaded in your castles, eyeing the, the mob, you know, nervously. They feel richer too. So what's going on here? Well, it's the wealth effect, not wealth. That you know, by engineering the prices of all assets to rise, you made everybody feel richer. You haven't actually printed any actual wealth. You've just made everybody feel richer. So then they're consuming their capital. It's actually worse than you think it is, but you're cheering this. I mean, that's the story of the last 30, 40 years. I mean, if you go to WTF 1971, um, you know, the lack of sound money, the, this fiat system, it's it's far worse than just inflation. Inflation is just part of it. Right. But but that wealth transfer effect, um, you know, it's the cantillon effect where the people that get the printed money first benefit over everyone else. And the best, the clearest example I can give for that is, you know, Fed fund rates are at 0%. The banks are borrowing near 0% and they're charging you 12 to 18% on your credit card. You know, I could make money doing that. You know, I, I'd be rich if I could do that, but I can't do that. You know, I, I went to get a business loan and it was 9%. It's like, why is a small business loan 9% and these guys are getting it at zero? Um, so, you know, and then the, the erosion of the middle class, the, the erosion of our manufacturing base due to the fact that we're the world reserve currency. So we just print the money and buy stuff from overseas. Um, and, you know, the reckoning is coming, uh, you know, as, as the system kind of falls apart and it's, it's tragic that it's gotten this bad and this far, but um, I, I don't think people realize the, the price that we paid for the system. And, and I don't think people realize you know, people always talk about doom and gloom if gold hits $5,000 or 10,000, whatever the price target, you know, like what a chaotic world that will be. But it, it, to me, it'll be a better world. Um, you know, this world that we've been living in with this wealth transfer effect, the erosion of our middle class is what needs to come to end. And, and, and readoption of gold as money broadly is, will uh, be a wonderful thing for this country. Well, I, th I think the fear is, and I read about this, that gold at five or $10,000 I mean, we may be a lot like Caracas, Venezuela, where there's a few people that in theory have a lot of wealth, 
But if you had a Ferrari, you'd never take it out of the garage and bring it on the street because the mobs would be hitting you with bricks and Molotov cocktails. Like if everyone else is that impoverished, they're desperate and hungry. You know, if you show that you have wealth, they'll kill you. You know, either out of anger or out of desperation because they think that you know maybe you have some food in your pocket. And, and that's exactly what Citizens for Sound Money is all about: is is spreading the word and trying to have it so that you know when things fall apart, the people will own gold and silver. The people will own sound money as broadly as possible, so that we can avoid that kind of avoid that kind of thing. You know, don't just help yourself. You know, help help your friends, help your family, and spread the word about it. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of gold and silver, um, how do you perceive gold? And silver, you know, one versus the other, you know, a gold standard, a silver standard. What are, what are your thoughts on, on, on I guess, the, 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 the hard money debate of gold versus silver? Yeah, so, well, central banks hold gold. Um, they don't, in general, hold silver. Uh, silver traditionally has been, you know, because it's lower in value, you can have a coin that you can spend more easily, you know. Um, so, you know, if you want to get a cup of coffee, you're not going to be paying gold for it. You'll be paying silver. Um, this day and age with the ability to do asset-backed digital currencies, you know, where you can subdivide gold as small as you want, that lessens the um, kind of need for silver. But when when you convert it to cash, it, it's nice to have small denominations. Um, I, I personally, I always say I hold gold because central banks hold it and I hold silver because they don't. Um, yeah, silver has that in silver That's has that in industrial use. So it's got this real world anchor that um, you know is gonna make sure that it's it's in demand and, and will always have a, a bid behind it. I was gonna say I, th I think in general people do not wanna walk around having to carry any kind of physical. I mean the trend has gone from paper cash to credit cards, from credit cards to it's on your phone or your watch. You know, you just go to the point of sale and you just take your watch and it just goes deep. And it's like, you know, thank you, Mr. Wiener. Um, you know, here's, you know, just press on your watch. Yes, I approve the charge. And, um, you know, the idea that people are going to go back to, you know, carrying coins as their primary means of transacting. To me, that's like, are we going to go back to wearing sackcloth robes tied at the waist with a rope belt and have this leather purse jingling on our, on our you know, I'm not sure that uh, the world wants that, but uh, but to your point about the electronic, um, you know, credits. Uh, by the way, have you seen uh, um, a company called uh, Goldback? Have you encountered any? Oh, of yeah, them? yeah. We interviewed um, Jeremy from Goldback. Um, okay. Guy. Yeah, actually, I have a, a stack of them right here from the right New there. Hampshire. Yeah. Yeah. So they make a New Hampshire. They don't make every state yet. They only have like half a dozen states, but New Hampshire is one of them. Right. Yeah. And then here's um, the, the the different. So there's the 50. It's pretty, pretty meaty. So 50 one thousandth of an ounce. Um, yeah, these are beautiful. They really are. Um, I, I remember I would see them online. I was like, eh. yeah, I wasn't all that excited. And then when I was in New Hampshire, the Liberty Forum, I saw them in person. And you really have to see them and feel them and, and you know, like photos of them look like paper. When you see them in person, you know that it's gold. So yeah, really neat product. Yeah, one of the things about gold is nothing else looks like gold. Mm -hmm. You know, you can make some sort of paint or whatever, but it never really looks right. Uh, yeah, you, 
he, he was he was talking about what it would take to counterfeit one of these and like you said nothing looks like gold so he's like if the guy had he says first off you need millions of dollars of equipment you know then you need to at least put some gold in there he's like and after all that trouble if you can really do that you could probably get a real job <laughs> you know if you're, <laughs> if, if you're that good that you can counterfeit right. this you know anyways i bring it up because that is obviously a denominator you can get it one one thousandth of an ounce mm -hmm. right so in terms of buying your coffee you know you can get a, a gold back that's basically worth a dollar 80 worth of gold plus the the premium for the for the product obviously but it certainly is coffee you know coffee, coffee bistro level denominations um and then the question is are they really going to circulate do people want to carry around you know physical physical stuff again versus the redeemability, the right to withdraw. If you don't trust the depository institution for some reason, you don't like the interest rate, you have the right to withdraw and then people need physical stuff to withdraw, but will it really circulate? is an interesting theoretical question. I do think, you know, we will be mainly cashless, but I think cash is always gonna have a role, um, you know, especially if you're not fond of the government, being able to do a cash transaction privately and anonymously is, is a good thing. Um, they, they supposedly have really pretty good success in, in circulation in Utah in the sense of, you know, there's numbers of vendors that take it. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely see, um, you know, sound, sound money, gold and silver, they'll, they'll, there will be a digital form to it for sure. Um, I think the one thing there shouldn't be is a paper certificate form. You know, it can be a blockchain accounting of it, or like gold backs, it could be you know a, a physical, um, you know, cash equivalent. But but you know, we can do better than paper now. Right. Paper certificates. So what do you, what do you call it? It's not a gold currency, because a currency is a piece of paper or digital that says you have the right to be paid the gold. The gold's actually contained in the gold back, so it's not exactly a currency. What what word do you actually call that thing by? Money. <laughs> a very Money. a very thin sliver. I know you guys are are slicing silver bars on a bandsaw, and you get them pretty thin. But I think um, gold backs they've got a way to get a lot thinner than that, and um, you know they're flexible, and they you know you can fold it and put it in your wallet, and I mean they're they're cool. I've got a few and I've written about them. And, um, I've interviewed, I haven't interviewed Jeremy, but um, the company that makes that for Goldback is called Valorum. Yeah. Um, who's a, a client of Monetary Metals. Um, and I've interviewed uh, the CEO, Adam Trexler, and you know, talked about this a whole bunch. And uh, they're building all the anti-counterfeit measures. I just noticed the other day, they, they signed another former US Mint you know, director or high-level person to their board of advisors. So they're studying and implementing all the stuff that the US government does in terms of security of the physical currency, proof against counterfeiting and little stripes and barcodes and holograms. And I don't, I don't know what the latest version has, but that's, that's what they're trying to focus on to make this absolutely, like if that thing says it's a thousandth of an ounce of gold, it's got a thousandth of an ounce of gold and you can trust that without having to melt it down and you know, stick it in a crucible and... Uh, yeah, I, I actually have an XRF machine. Um, so I did scan them. Um, but I think for the ones, the thickness is is thin enough that they don't get a good scan out of it. But the 50, you know, came out 99, you know, whatever. 
pure gold. So um, yeah, they, they scan, I didn't have to melt it. The scan and XRF guns, I've also been at, you know, places like vaults where they have, you know, like, like uh, ultrasound and other kinds of detectors. And being that it's floppy and plastic, those don't really detect the gold. Um, but, you know, XRF, I guess for something like that, it's so thin, XRF should be enough. You're not worried that there's gold around the tungsten core or something because they're so thin that the XRF would see all the way through that. Yeah, and XRF can penetrate, um, you know, clear, clear stuff. But basically, my reading was enough to say, okay, this is definitely gold. I'm sure the fact that I'm reading it through whatever I'm reading through and it's thin enough is the reason why it's not reading is 100%. Um, right. And the 50 read pretty close to 100%. So, but I mean, to, to your point, the fact that it says there's gold in there, nobody would go to the length of, of acquiring all that equipment. By the way, uh, 480 volt service, electrical, you know, electrical service, like 240 is not enough to run that equipment and the cooling and all the other things that you need. Nobody would go to that length to put a gold alloy in there and get away with, okay, it's not solid gold. It's only half gold and half copper. Aside from which that would look very different because uh, copper gold alloy would look much better. Um, nobody, would, if there's any gold in there at all, then it's probably the real deal because it wouldn't be worth your while to, to fake it halfway. It's either going to be completely fake, like gold painted aluminum, or it's going to be real gold, and your XRF gun will, will prove that. There's two things people don't know about all this, like the physical side of this. One is, if you haven't held a piece of 24 karat, 100% or you know, four nines gold, you should go and hold a piece of it, like a Canadian maple or a gold bar. It is so much heavier than it has any right to be. It is astonishingly heavy. The other is just how hot hot is. So I'm sure you've been also in a... Um, refiner where you've seen them actually melting it or you maybe you've done it yourself pour it into a crucible that is so impressively hot like you know i've been exactly. there i've melted several thousand ounces at this point um I, i've been in, in in these places where generally i'm wearing a suit because i'm in a business function and they're giving me a tour and so they're usually holding me at a 30 foot or more distance away from it and at 30 feet the heat that like they open the little door to the furnace and they're pulling out the crucible, the heat that comes radiating out of that is so intense. It's, it's actually impressive. Like, my God, I can't even imagine being so close that you're pulling it with the tongs. That's like ferociously hot. Um, yeah, um, sometimes I'll have my glove off and I'll be pouring and I'll be a couple feet away from pouring. And within 30 seconds, it's like starting to burn my hand, the radiation heat, it's not, it's not the air, the air's not hot, it's just the radiation. You know, and it's glowing, um, you know, yellowish. Right, yellow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I, I, I poured um, like 20 or 30 10-ounce rounds yesterday. I have two, two forges going at once. My electric was out of commission, but I got, I got a new crucible for that, so I, I can do pouring three at a time. But you're doing silver, right? Yes. What's yeah. the melting point of silver relative to gold? I, I've never looked it up. I don't know relative to gold. I think it's pretty close, but it's 1760. Um, for silver, I think gold is at eighteen hundred something. It, it may be a it's little hotter, hotter than I would have thought for something so soft. I would have thought, oh, like lead, you know, it's out of a thousand. Oh, no, it's that, yeah, I guess compared to lead, yeah. But um, we we've had that we 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 did some brass castings for our original stamps, and that's like nineteen fifty. Um, it was about 
it was the strongest thing we could find that could be melted in kind of conventional equipment. You know, once you get to steel, forget it. Yeah, that's really hot. Right. I, I can only imagine you see these guys with the steel. Obviously, there's the huge crucibles that lift up my cranes, but there are guys that are handling it, whatever. I'm like, what is that heat like? To be, can you imagine working in that environment for an eight-hour shift? Yes, I can. <laughs> Much. It gets yeah. hot. I'm just soft and spoiled, but I, I can't <laughs> imagine, you know, I've, I've worked in my in my backyard, you know, doing landscaping here in Arizona where it's 110 outside or something. And I've, 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 I've survived that. You know, I'll drink about 20 ounces of water every 10 to 15 minutes all day. And, you know, but uh, I, I can't even imagine an environment like that. Must be a whole. I think, I think that's why my face is so red today is cat pouring yesterday. Also, oh, it has a residual for a couple of days. Oh, it's kind of like getting sunburned. Yeah. Oh, wow. Got a nice tan, Jim. Yeah. Wow. Jim, thanks for thanks for coming on to the show. Where can people follow you and, and learn about your work and the Citizens for Sound Money? Yeah, so um, on Twitter, we're at for sound money with a number four. Then it's citizensforsoundmoney.org, our website, with again, with the number four. Um, there's a newsletter. People sign up on there. Uh, we've got these one-fifth ounce Citizens for Sound Money coins, um, and we we uh, sell a couple ounces of those at cost uh, to people on our newsletter. Um, we we sent out a coupon code for that. Although the next shipment might be a little while because we we just sold out, but uh, it's a it's a good way to get some low cost silver that you can hand out as tips and spread the message. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks. This episode was brought to you by Monetary Metals. Monetary Metals is a different kind of gold company. Others buy and sell gold. Monetary Metals operates the Gold Yield Marketplace, a platform of products that offer a yield on gold paid in gold to investors and institutions, and our gold financing simplified, reliable financing denominated in gold with a built-in hedge for gold-using and gold-producing businesses. To learn more, visit www.monetary-metals.com. See you next time.